return of the midweeks. Welcome back. Today is Samuel Part 3, Eli's Worthless Sons. Up to this point in the story, we've been pretty much looking at the introduction, the birth of Samuel through his faith-filled mother, uh, Hannah. And now we're going to shift into a portion of the story which is going to chronicle the fall of the house of Eli with his sons, as well as the ascendancy of Samuel as the prophet to the Lord. And in part, you know, as we're looking at the formation of the kingdom, this is the birth of the prophet, prophetic gift being used by the Lord to rule over the kingship. Um, a prophet establishes kings, a prophet tears down kings, and this is really the theme for the rest of Israelite history until they go into exile, is that as the kingship arises, prophets also arise to be God's messengers to the kings and really declare God's word to the kings, whether for good or for destruction. And so this is this next section. And as we read this, you'll see that this story kind of moves back and forth between um, God talking to Eli about something and then a summary about how Samuel's doing and then another interaction with Eli and then another interaction about Samuel. And by weaving these two things together, what God's doing with Eli as well as Samuel growing up, they're overlapping the rise of Samuel with the fall of Eli in his house. And so by the time Eli is totally destroyed, Samuel is established as a main character in this book and a main person in God's kingdom at this time. So I didn't read verse 11 last time. I probably should have because I think it's probably the the end of the previous section, the introduction of Samuel, but I'll read it today and then we'll learn about Eli's worthless sons. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, this starts a new section of this, the book. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now, if you remember when Hannah was praying previously, and Eli rebuked her for being drunk at the temple. And she says, please don't take me as a worthless woman. That's that same word in Hebrew. So ironically, Eli rebuked Hannah for being a worthless woman, but actually it's his sons that were worthless men, meaning that they were devoted to self-destructive things. They were devoted to sin. They did not know the Lord, which is something to say. Eli's the high priest. His sons were also priests and they didn't know God, which is a great reminder that people can be in the presence of God. People can be in the systems of God. People can be blood descendants of Abraham who gave God the promises of God and still not know the Lord. And so that knowing means not so much having information in your head about who the Lord is, but be living in a faith-based relationship with the Lord that shows fruit, that produces fruit, that produces faith-filled obedience and devotion to the Lord. The custom of the priest, verse 13, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Okay, so we're learning about part of what makes Eli's sons worthless. And the big thing is that they despise the Lord's gift. So the Lord called all of Israel to come and worship him through sacrifice. And he also called the people of Levi, 
the tribe of Levi to facilitate the worship by helping with the sacrifices, by performing the sacrifices, and also to teach God's word and as kind of their portion of the sacrifice because they didn't get land in Israel. Their portion was actually a part of the worship. By They, they were fed by the worship of the Israelites at Shiloh. And I can't, I, I'm not sure exactly if the author is trying to make a point here, but this whole description of the fork going into the boiling pot seems to me like they're not respecting um, how God has apportioned the pieces of the meat to the Levites, but they're kind of just going mamsy-pamsy and they'll just walk around taking whatever they can get with their fork out of the pot. So this is the beginning of their disrespect for the offerings of the Lord. Moreover, verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who is sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 17 right there, that's the big condemnation, that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And this is a great sin, not just because any worshiper who despises the worship they're offering to God is a big deal, but as a Levite, they're so close to God. They're a holy tribe amongst the holy tribes of Israel. So their despising of the Lord and his offering is an off-the-charts insult to God. And Remember the fat portions, why are they talking about fat? The fat portions belong to God. God claimed them as his special tribute, that all the fat portions belong to me, to him because that was meant to be the best part of the sacrifice. And so the fat portions were meant to be burned up to the Lord so that he got the best portions and the meat left over was meant to be for the worshipers to eat as well as for the priests and the Levites to eat, or at least the priestly family to eat. And so... What they're saying here is they want the glory that belongs to God alone. They want to consume the offering that belongs to God alone. And by choosing to steal that glory, they're in one sense making themselves to be God or at least trespassing on his holiness. And then when the worshipers want to do proper worship by giving the fat to God, they threaten the worshipers with force, which is just amazing. Imagine going to church and having someone say, where's your tithe? Well, I don't have it with me. Okay. And then they punch you in the face for not tithing. And then instead of bringing the tithe to the church, they just pocketed the cash. That's kind of like what's going on here. Okay. So there's that first little picture of the worthless sons of Eli. And now we're going to go back to look at Samuel for a little bit because the story is sewing together the rise of Samuel with the fall of Eli. So we're going to look at Samuel for a bit. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they returned to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So you got a couple things going on here. We revisit Samuel, we're reminded that he's ministering during this time. There, maybe we're thinking, is there a question mark that he's learning the bad habit and the bad worship of Eli's sons? Thankfully, he's not, but we do see his mother and his father coming and visiting him every year as they come to the annual sacrifices. 
And we see Eli doing his um, high priestly role of continuing to pray blessings on these people. And there is some sense that maybe Eli is appreciative and enjoying Samuel's presence at the tabernacle because he's blessing uh, you don't you don't hear a complaint out of his mouth. You hear a blessing out of his mouth, and so the sense kind of is is that Samuel is really a blessing to Eli that he's there. And then they go home, and then this is the last I think we hear of Hannah, and and we hear that the Lord does continue to bless her, and kind of gives back to her three more sons and two more daughters for the boy Samuel that she dedicated to the Lord. So there we go. The the those. Initial characters from the introduction are all wrapped up. They have a bit of a happy ending. And then we're going to continue on with the Eli story. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Okay, a couple things here. Um, There's a bit of an echo going on here with Eli being old and not successfully rebuking his sons. And it kind of reminds us of David later on in his life when Amnon does that thing with... um, where he assaults his stepsister, um, and David does not successfully rebuke him, as well as when Absalom does all his trials, and David does not successfully restore Absalom. And so we have this thing here, and I guess even you could say when Solomon is becoming king, and David is really, really, really old, and he needs to get prompted to make Solomon king. So there's this sense here of a man whose spiritual energy is, is spent and doesn't successfully rebuke his sons. But at the same time, the sovereignty of God is on display here because in verse 25, it says that the Lord is actually ruling over these men's ability to respond to their father's rebuke. And it it says specifically that they didn't listen because it was God's will to put them to death. So God hardened their hearts, probably kind of like Pharaoh. He hardened their hearts. They didn't respond to true words and a good rebuke because God wanted to punish them for what they'd already done. And so this is a, a an important and wild demonstration of the sovereignty of God over people's hearts, even hardening a heart so that they would continue on in sin in order to um, be punished by the Lord. Verse 26, another one of these stitchings, sewing together these two stories. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And this gives us a sense of time passing. It doesn't just say five years later. It just says Samuel continues to grow. So we're getting a sense that this is happening over time. Verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? And I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people? 
See, this is what I was saying before. This is where a prophet comes to Eli to rebuke him with exactly what I was saying. God specifically, by grace, chose this nation of Israelites, of uh, Levites amongst the Israelites, to be the priests, to offer sacrifice, to burn incense, to wear the ephod. And God blessed them by sharing his sacrifice with them, but they've transgressed by taking the choice parts for themselves, which belong to God. And so by letting this happen, Eli has actually honored his own household more than God. And that's a, that's a blasphemy and that's a great crime. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. I promised that, but now declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Let's pause there at the end of verse 31. Someone could say, hey, God doesn't keep his promises here. But in scripture, many of God's promises are what you might call contingent promises. They're contingent on the ongoing faith of the people that have received the promises. And so unbelief can break the promise sometimes. Now, the promise of the new covenant is not like that because God fulfilled it himself through Jesus Christ. And so the promises of the new covenant, they were dependent, but they were fulfilled in God himself through Christ. And so they're bought for us by the faithfulness of Jesus and aren't, in one sense, didn't need to be fulfilled by a human being alone. However, this is a good reminder that all the promises of God are laid hold of by faith. Faith receives the promise. Faith receives the promise. And so what he's saying here is your behavior is the fruit of your unbelief and the promises to your house don't count when you reject them by unbelief. Because all these stories are about faith and unbelief. The whole Bible is about faith and unbelief. All right, let's keep going here. Then distress will look on, sorry, then in distress, verse 32, you will look on with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. That's a crazy uh, curse. But again, just like in the garden, death follows the curse. And this actually, just having said that, really reminds us of Adam and Eve. There was one thing not to eat in the garden, and because they ate it, they got a curse of death. And there was one thing not to eat outside the temple, that was the fat. And because they ate it, they get a death curse over them, that their men would not live long lives. The descendants would keep happening. They're not going to be completely cut off as a nation, but they're going to have lots of trouble in their family because of their unbelief expressed through eating a holy thing. Um, the only one of you that I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. That's crazy. And this shall, and this that shall come upon your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to all that's in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall, be, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Okay, so God's prophesying death and lack over Eli's descendants because of their unbelief. And, but at the same time, he's promising the Messiah that God will raise up a faithful priest who will go out before the anointed. And so there here is even a messianic promise 
in this time. So there's even hope in the midst of this curse, just like in the garden. All right, we're going to wrap it up from here. We will pick it up next time, starting in chapter 3. What do you think of God's ways with Eli? Does it seem too harsh? Or if you think about it, does it seem like the holiness of God? Be blessed, and we will catch you next time.